This is the Concealed Carry Podcast, Season 8, Episode 15. Welcome to the Concealed Carry Podcast, part of the ConcealedCarry.com network of podcasts, including the Firearm Trainers Podcast and the Off-Duty, On-Duty Podcast. We welcome you to today's episode. This one is sponsored, our title sponsor is Mountain Man Medical. And also, uh, I am your host, Riley Bowman. And today I'm joined by a special guest, multiple time guest now, Charlie Perez. Hello, good sir. Hello. Thanks for having me on again. It's going to be fun. I'm looking forward to our topic today. Uh, And it's something that you certainly are well, well versed in. And, uh, and we have, I think the two of us have slightly different approaches to our topic today. We're going to talk about aiming solutions. Uh, what you need to see, what you really need to see with respect to your sight picture uh, for any given shot on any given target uh, and so to get good, reliable, consistent hits. Uh, so I think it'll be a good good topic of discussion. Uh, today's episode sponsors, by the way, are KSG Armory Holsters as well as Range Tech Shot Timers. And we'll do a little more on the sponsor spots here later in the episode. So without further ado, Charlie, let's launch into our topic so yeah let's do it and it was it was actually your idea you know and you said hey man let's do a podcast and i want to talk about this concept so uh i want to i want to throw it your way first to begin with as far as what what made you want to come on the concealed carry podcast and talk about aiming solutions yeah so i think it's an interesting topic because there's a, a bunch of different approaches that are successful and everybody is at a different place in their shooting adventure, in their uh, age, their sight acuity, their focal speed, you know, what they're paying attention to at any given time. And I think it's an important to have a, a, a general discussion around what, what do you need to see to shoot at an aggressive pace and call your shots, right? And, and calling your shots can be summed up as where are the bullets going? Right. To be able to know where your hit's going to be after they leave the barrel, you know, and go down range. So I think it's important that we take some time to have. And I wanted to have this discussion with you, Riley, because you and I have kind of like opposite approaches to this. that are both successful. So it's not like mine's better than yours. Yours is better than mine. It's just two different ways to achieve the same goal. And I, I think that that is uh, actually really cool because it kind of proves that you can have, you know, way different ways of doing stuff to achieve success, right? So uh, I think that we should start the discussion of our own iron sights because that seems to be the biggest enigma for a lot of people. You know, what am I looking at? What do I need to see? How much refinement do I need to see in sights? You know, um, am I target focused? Am I sight focused? Am I somewhere in between? When do I start looking for the sights? All that kind of good stuff. So, yeah. uh before we'll we get too that. far into that, um, let's ju- just for our listeners and viewers uh, that may not be familiar with you. I mean, you've you've been on the podcast a couple of times now, uh, but uh, quick quick little intro, and I'm gonna I'll do that for you. And if I miss anything, feel free to to get me set straight. But uh, Charlie, you've been sh- you've been competitively shooting, which is you know more your focus now for what probably about 12, 13, maybe fourteen years now, maybe even going on. Yeah, 15, this is huh? my. Yeah, this is going to be my 15th year in uh, competition shooting. I was going to say, yeah. you started in about 2008, right? 
Yeah. 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 So, uh, and you, during that time you've spent, and, and you're mostly focused on USPSA competitive shooting, uh, yep. United States practical shooting association. That's, that's my sport as well. And that's where I, I, you know, devote my time now as my focus as well. Uh, and, uh, during most of that time you've been, and you're well regarded as a limited division shooter, which is basically folks, if they're not familiar, generally in limited division, you're going to see most shooters running something akin to like a 2011 or double stack 1911 with iron sights only. And, uh, and you can have a magwell and, you know, basically full capacity magazines and that kind of thing. And most guys are shooting, you know, 40, 40, uh, Smith and Wesson for the chosen caliber. Uh, there's some exceptions obviously to all of, all of the above I mentioned, but that's kind of like your standard, you know, setup that my, it seems like most, most people have success running. And so iron sights, uh, you finished numerous times in the top 10 at uh, limited nationals, which is, uh, I mean, I don't know how many people realize, but that's, that's a, a very respectable feat. Uh, not many are able to do that, <laughs> including myself yet working on that maybe one day, but, um, uh, but yeah, most of mostly iron sight shooting for most of your career, you've done some, open division, which is the race gun category. I guess a lot of people consider limited guns kind of a race gun as well, but open guns truly are, you know, race guns, uh, you know, formula one style, you know, uh, of USPSA shooting, uh, which is all, all the stops come, you know, come out and, uh, you can run pretty much anything (laughs) that you want for the most part, but that usually means an optic on a gun. And, in the last uh, year, you've kind of committed yourself more to primarily shooting open division now, as I know that you've expressed your your vision has been changing and not co- wanting to cooperate quite so much with the whole iron sight thing, right? Did, did I get that all kind of yeah. pretty, pretty good as a summary? <clears throat> yeah, that's a great summary. Yeah, and, you know, I, I think the important thing around you know, vision acuity. So there's obviously like, can you see at distance? Can you see close? We need to be able to, you know, s- focus on certain things. And that, and I also think that like, it's kind of like a, a gauging item on what type of type of sighting system do we need to use? Right. So yeah. like for me, I, you know, I started with iron sights. I always found that it was a very challenging sight system to figure out. And as I aged over time, became more challenging and more challenging. I really like that aspect of figuring things out and making sure that I can see what I need to see, quote unquote, you know, to be able to call my shots effectively at pace. And over the years of shooting iron sights, I've really had to change up, do like a tremendous amount of, you know, sight size and width and height, you know, testing, uh, fiber optic color in the front sight changes, um, <clears throat> shooting glasses with offset diopters to help bring my focus closer and that kind of stuff. And, um, but I think that that's, you know, we can hit on all those different topics, but I, I think it's like the general tenor is what solution works for a given season may not be the same solution you need for next season and the following season and the following season after that, because our, our vision is always going to be in motion. If that's it, if that makes sense. Like, our our eyes age over time and, and as they age things slow down uh and for me like the big you know the the litmus test of are my iron sight days over is my focal speed from far to close or close to far 
when I first started shooting competitively, I had young eyes. And so my far to close, close to far focus speed was very fast. And like a general rule of thumb that I like to use is if I put a target at 20 yards and then I put the gun in front of my face, like I'm going to shoot, but I look through my sights. So I have a blurry sight focus, uh, no focus on the sights, I should say, but I have a hard focus on the target. Then I use a shot timer to set off the timer and I bring my focus back to the front sight. So where I can actually see the serrations in the front sight. And that's when I would break the shot. And when I first started shooting USPSA, that time was probably in the 0.4 to 0.5 second range, which is actually pretty fast. And it's not as fast as a young kid, right? Like young, young kids, uh, early 20s, uh, teens, like I've done that testing with, with young students and their focal speed is like ultra fast, like in the three tenths, four tenths range. But over time, like I, I always kind of had that as a marker of like, let me measure how long it takes me to fo- change focus from far to close. And like over time, I noticed, oh man, this is taking longer, taking longer, taking longer. And it got to the point like this last year was the last year I shot iron sights. And without using my corrective shooting glasses, I could, I would do that same test and it was almost two seconds to yeah. s- switch that focus. Wow. And at the pace that we do, do things in competition shooting, you can do a lot of stuff in two seconds, you know, firing multiple shots, transitioning between targets and, you know, that kind of stuff. And what it really translates to is if I would allow my focus to dig into the wrong thing, I would end up being forced to shoot from a, a circumvented sighting scenario, meaning sight picture scenario. Like, yeah, I've always been biased towards having a more sight focus versus a target focus. And I want to really state that clearly that it's, I'm not saying a front sight focus. I'm saying having a sight focus because uh, there's very few shots in the action shooting sports where you need a hard front sight focus, where you see the serrations in the front sight, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, that's more of, I would say, like a bullseye type of shooting sport type of scenario or your group shooting, unlimited time, that kind of stuff, right? So what about you, Riley? So what is your preferred sighting system on iron sights as far yeah. as where you're looking and that kind of stuff? Yeah, you know, like you, I spent most of my life being more biased towards the sights in terms of my my vision, my focus, uh perhaps my accommodation, right? Which I guess in case folks aren't familiar, um, when you use words like focus, and we, we will probably throw the word focus out a fair amount because, uh, I don't know, it just is the way I, I we speak, I suppose. And, and people general, generally understand what you mean when you say focus. But we do have to recognize that uh, focus could be attributed to um, what you're actually looking at, like where your eyes are converged. Uh, but it, it could also be where your eyes are actually like the 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 uh, plane, the focal plane, you know, the, the, how, how far out, you know, you're actually focused in terms of what you're seeing clearly. Um, the, I kind of, I guess, automatist approved terms would be more along the lines of there's your visual convergence or your optical convergence where your eyes are converging, which is the thing you're actually looking at. And then the accommodation where your, your focal plane. Um, that uh, little tiny muscles in your eyeballs, you know, change the shape of your eye, your lens to to kind of make all that work and 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 come into play. Uh, so, like you, most of my life spent where I would 
was biased more towards a uh, site accommodation, um, seeing the target less clearly. But uh, when I started shooting red dots uh, more, which it was, it was a transition over time, I think it was 27, like I think halfway or partway through the shooting season in 2017, back when I was still doing three gun, um, I put a red dot on one of my competition pistols for the first time. And uh, so I started doing that. And that was a surprisingly straightforward transition for me to go to the dot. And, uh, and then it, you know, more and more I, I became to where I was almost exclusively shooting guns, both on, you know, my, like my defensive guns, as well as my competition guns uh, were all, you know, I converted over to red dots essentially. And so then this last year I I mean, I, occasionally I would, you know, shoot iron sighted guns here and there. I still own some, obviously. I I've actually acquired a few this last year that are, you know, that just just have irons on them. Um, but and then in like sometimes teaching classes, I'd have a student that'd be like, "Hey, can you check something out with my gun?" You know, and they'd just be running irons. And so there'd be this these, you know, a, a couple of rounds here and there, maybe a couple of magazines worth that I'd shoot periodically with irons. Um, but basically, I was exclusively red dots for for several years. So last year when I decided I was going to go and shoot and compete at production nationals, I wouldn't have considered doing that except that it was supposed to be held here in Colorado and then later was moved. Um, but uh, I, I decided to stick with the plan and still go and compete. And now I, I realized I, I'm like, you know what? That was pretty fun. And I did pretty well as well. So like, let's, let's, let's keep doing that thing, you know? And it is a good challenge. It, it, especially it's a good challenge for me having shot the red dot for so long now trying to come back and run irons again. So I explained that, that history because I explained how I was brought up, how I was taught, how I, you know, was trained initially was with more of a focus and accommodation on the sites. Uh, but then going to red dots where you're getting encouraged. And in fact, it's preferable to be target focused, uh, and doing that for five, six years now, pretty exclusively when I transitioned to trying to compete in production division, which is an iron sight only division last year. Um, I was a little unsure how that would go, but it surprisingly went better than I expected. And what changed for me now, and I think it's because of the like sole focus on red dots for as long as I did uh, for basically half a decade. When I went back to using irons, in a serious format, I found that I really had a hard time actually focusing or seeing, well, I still, I see the sites for that's for sure. But I, I, I kind of thought Charlie, I'll be honest at nationals, there was a, there were some shots that were really difficult shots, really tight shots. I mean, we were shooting together with PCC division as well. And everyone knows that that's more of a, usually a distance biased, um, division. And, uh, I thought there were going to be stages where I remember looking at targets. I'm like, that's one where I might want to, I'm going to, obviously I'm going to want to take a little bit more time on that target. Um, but I kind of thought that I would pull my vision back more to the sites. And I, I didn't. And I, it, and it was a funny thing because I remember during certain stages where I had one of those types of shots and I would be like, and you not, you don't want to be really consciously thinking on the clock, but there would be that kind of this, this thing in the back of my mind where I'm like, shouldn't I be like trying to see more of that? you know, sight and you know, in the front sight and the rear notch. And it, and it, I mean, I was aware of the sights, uh, but I was definitely 
hard target focused for all like 429 shots or whatever that national championship was in terms of shot count. And that really surprised me in a big way. And I realized I'm like, hmm, this is very doable. The biggest lessons I learned with respect to that were um, I did pretty well on shots as far as like elevation calls. Like that was surprisingly um, actually a little, probably a little bit more successful than I sometimes am with shot calls with a dot. But where I struggled the most was where shots were really tight as far as like, you know, like a tuxedo target, for instance, where you have a, you know, narrow uh, width of a, of a target zone. Um, that one I realized I needed to be a little more patient on and see a little bit more in that front rear sight relationship. So as I, so as not to, you know, end up with errant shots to the left or to the right. Uh, so that's kind of been my journey and it's been really interesting. And so, like you said, I mean, you have more of a bias towards, uh, a focus on sights when you're shooting irons. I have definitely now a way more of a bias towards, you know, like a true target focus when I'm shooting irons. So that's, that's kind of where we, we have now come together, uh, a, a combining of the minds here to discuss, you know, how this can work and how shooters can be successful with either approach. Absolutely. So I, I think that like one of the things I, I, I try to do in my classes is to kind of explain to my students what I need to see as far as see what you need to see is you know, like, what is a successful site focus? And uh, the easiest way that I can really describe it is if, if we have like a lot of people think of sites and I'm using my fingers here. So they're about, I don't know, eight inches apart. Right. So I have the rear site. It's, and behind the front sight, and people think of the, the sighting system at these two different planes a lot. And that's where they get this thought process of, oh, are you front sight focused or are you rear sight focused? But I think that when a lot of people are shooting at speed and they have kind of a softer sight focus, they're almost on the same plane, right? So yeah, you have this scenario where there's really not a perceivable depth between the, a front sight or a rear sight. You kind of see them both not in a optimal, like sharp image, but I've found for myself in order to call my shots and understand where's the gun registered on the target properly, I I need to see the front, uh, the, fr- the front top corners of the front sight, right? So if I can see the, the corners of the front sight, uh, that is enough of a site focus for me to call my shots effectively. So in, I'm saying that in a manner that uh, in order for me to do that, I have to use a fiber in the front sight that is not overwhelming to the point where it's either physically too big, like the bulb of it has been melted too big, or the color of it is so bright that it overwhelms seeing those top corners, right? So for me, it, it was a ex- very extensive sight size and fiber color testing effort to really discover a big enough front sight that I can quickly and easily see those top corners, but also use a fiber color and a fiber diameter that is small enough that it, its only job is to bring my attention 
towards those corners, if that makes sense. Yeah. So for me, that's what I need to effectively call my shots at speed, meaning the sights alignment is always swimming around. There's, there's always a certain amount of deviation of the front sight swimming in the notch type of a scenario. And there's always the whole sight picture is swimming around on the target. Right. Right. And, and those two things I found early on in the game that if I am not shooting during those movement scenarios, I'm not shooting soon enough. Right. So if I waited for a steady sight picture, meaning steady sights on a very specific place on the target, regardless of alignment, it's too slow. And if I waited for perfect alignment within the notch, that's too slow. And too slow is always subjective, but <laughs> but, but we, the practical shooting sports games, it, it's a, a an aggressive biased game, meaning we got to get the shooting done quickly in, in a rapid manner. And there's we don't really have time for our sights to linger in a steady state for any amount of time. Like I'll give myself steady sights as my gun is transitioning into the next target. But after that, it's always sights in motion. Or if the targets are close to each other and there's very close transitions to one another, those sights are always in motion, right? And I have to be okay with these sights are kind of swimming around within the notch, swimming around within the aiming desired aiming spot on the target. And that's okay. And, and that's, that's what I need in order to shoot at the proper aggressive pace, yield the minimum amount of points I need on target and you know, quality of hits wise, and also, you know, have an aggressive pace of getting the stuff done and not over aiming when I don't need to. Mm. So that's my optimal iron sight, you know, desire when I'm shooting iron sights is to see those top corners and they shouldn't be steady. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it does make sense. Uh, I've got uh, a question or two. I'm going to follow that up with uh, for you. But first, quick little break for our spar- for, for our first episode sponsor today, which is KSG Armory Holsters. Uh, folks, those of you that have been uh, following us for a while, you're probably familiar somewhat with KSG Armory. Uh, you've probably seen some of our stuff, some of our product. Uh, the KSG is, of course, the company with uh, that we acquired last year as Jacob and I and the team here had been considering for some time starting actually a holster company from scratch. Uh, we are concealed carry.com after all. And it just seemed like, you know, that, that made sense to do. It had been in the, you know, it had been a, an idea. It had been discussed many, many times over a couple of years about doing that. And the opportunity came to acquire KSG and man, we are, we are glad we did to, to align ourselves with a brand that already had a reputation for quality and uh, came from a really good dude. Uh, you know, we're honored to carry forth the, the legacy that uh, Gabe, uh, formerly uh, that was uh, the owner of KSG, uh, started. And uh, you know, we we look to to just make it bigger and better and more awesome, but still, you know, make a top quality, top notch concealed carry holster product. Uh, check them out today, KSGArmory.com. Uh, they're literally like I'm sitting in our company office space here this evening as I'm doing this podcast. Because uh, my home office isn't available right now, but on the opposite or on the other side of this wall, it's opposite me here. Is that's that's where the magic happens. That's where these every one of these holsters is made right here in Colorado. Uh, and uh, yeah, we hope that you'll really like them. So check them out, KSG Armory. 
podcastlisteners.com. If you want to save a little bit of dough, podcast listeners only. This is not published in uh, written form, so you got to be listening or paying attention. But if you use the discount code CCPODCAST, you can save 10% off of our holsters or really any of our products at ksgarmory.com. So, Charlie, first question. Is there ever a time, and I, I understand that in our sport, it's it's certainly a rare occurrence as I see it, uh, if it exists uh, for you, but you're a very high-level shooter. Is there ever a time, is there ever a shot, like a super, super tight partial with high risk, you know, like tight no-shoot partial uh, type scenario where um, where you do end up feeling like you need to get your sights more or less, you know, settled as far as like almost like equal height, equal light type stuff. Just curious. So the answer of that is yes, but it's actually the byproduct of the trigger control time. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. So like, yeah, if we're yeah. shooting at very difficult shots, we need a different trigger mechanism, right? A different process. Usually it's like a prep squeeze type of trigger pull. And that it takes longer to do a prep squeeze type of trigger pull than it does a rowing or a slapping of the trigger, right? And to put it in numbers, you, you know, if we're shooting aggressively with a rowing of the finger or a slap, we're probably shooting like 0. 0.2, 0. 0.115, you know, that's type the the speed that we're shooting at. If we're doing a prep squeeze, like a fast prep squeeze is like a 25, right? And yep. they're usually like a, a 30 or a 35. And if you have a 30 or a 35, the whole gun is going to have time to settle. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. And from that perspective, our, my index, meaning anytime the gun is pointing at a target between my face and a target, the index is good enough that I rarely have to steer my sights to aligned. Right. Right. So just having the gun pointed at a target in front of my face, if my if I have time for everything to settle and stop being in motion, they're going to be like 90% aligned or better, if that makes sense. Yep. So hope, hopefully that's like a little a way of answering your question, yeah. but it's really, uh, I think it's more a, a byproduct. Yes, there's more time to see a more clear, refined, steady sight picture but it's all the byproduct of the trigger pull. Man, I, I love this because our approaches with respect to, especially the use of irons is a bit different. And uh, the way you just described this last piece is also basically reversed of how I think of it. And I have literally used the word byproduct to describe that my trigger control is a byproduct of what I what I need, you know, what I'm doing with, as far as like what I'm trying to see in the sights, <laughs> mm-hmm. and so that's so that's so cool, man. Because like but we kind of come at some of this stuff from like this side and this side. That, that, that in the, in the end, it's all kind of the same. It's just it's more or less how you how you think of it or how you want to articulate it. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, I've described it as that trigger control is a byproduct of you. Uh, and actually, it's a it's a bit of a borrowing of a phrase that uh, Brian Enos said in his book, where he says, trigger control is born of a desire to hit the target. 
and I translate that into trigger control as a is a byproduct of your desire to see a certain thing you need to see to hit that target. Uh, and so anyway, absolutely. I, I, I love, you know, I love that. For, like ultimately, like it, at the pace that we need to shoot at in, in the action sh- shooting sports is there's no time for conscious decisions. Yep. So what we need to do is we need to give our subconscious enough opportunities of, of valid, good enough sight pictures meaning the sights are aligned good enough. The gun is settled good enough on this part of the aiming spot on the target that it's going to yield the hit that I want. And once we give our subconscious enough at bats of that sight picture that like, I don't even think about a trigger pull when I'm shooting a stage. Yep. My subconscious is doing whatever trigger pull is needed for that given target. And it's really that given sight picture. The sights look this way at this given target, and this, my subconscious says, "Oh, I need this type of a trigger pull at this pace, this yeah. pressure, this mechanic." Right. So, yep. from that perspective, Bingo. the sight picture is the byproduct of the trigger pull. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, no. It, it, there's yeah. There's so many ways you can kind of come at this from like a articulation standpoint. Uh, I, either way, it, it, that is the way you just described that is spot on. You know, the, the, the goal is to get to where that, that, that process happens subconsciously. Uh, and that's obviously going to, I mean, it takes some time. It takes some practice. That's for sure. Um, my goal, obviously, as a teacher, as an instructor is to help my students get there, you know, as soon as possible with as few uh, rounds expended as possible so that we make that journey as efficient as possible. And so I think part of that is probably, and I know you do this because uh, in, in your class, I've done your class uh, two times now, um, and I'd love to do it again. Uh, I noticed you sent out a notice this last week uh, with a couple of class mm-hmm. options, and unfortunately, they both land on weekends where I'm, I'm I'm teaching one class myself on one of those weekends, and I think the other one I'm I'm out of town for something else. But or else I might you know try to slide into to one of your upcoming classes again here in the Colorado area. Uh, by the way, folks, uh, Charlie's. Uh, training company, Big Panda Performance, uh, bigpandaperformance.com, right? That's your yes, website? sir. And you've got, you've been doing a bunch of classes this year. I've been uh, really excited and happy for you to see that. Um, folks, you can check out his website and see his training uh, calendar on there. So just go to bigpandaperformance.com and uh, sign up for a class with Charlie. And I know that you'll really enjoy it. But one of the, one of the ex- exercises you do in that class um, which is basically a throttle control um, exercise. And there's other instructors that do similar things. And I do something similar in my class as well, because I mean, throttle control is a really important skill to have. And that, and, and it's a, it's an example of the sort of thing we're talking about where, you know, when you have a, a far target and you have targets of equal size and you got one that's far and you got one that's close and you got one at kind of an intermediate distance each one of those is going to require a little different aiming solution and uh, learning what that is for you. That's, that's the key. And that's ultimately like what we're really here to discuss because we could talk all day long about, well, a seven yard, you know, shot looks like this. Um, but we, we need to talk about what a seven yard shot and a 10 yard shot and a 15 and a 20, 25, and maybe even a 50 yard shot all look like, or what, what's, you know, required for those. And so I think that, probably is a a good uh segue i mean I, i'm going to throw it back at you charlie to ask what do you if we could use um 
In fact, let's make it even simpler. Let's go 5, 15, and 25. If you could kind of describe what your, from your point of view, what your aiming solutions are with iron sights uh, first uh, at 5 yards, 15 yards, and 25 yards on a typical like USPSA A-zone type, you know, target. Uh, yeah, so with iron sights, probably the easiest correlation that you can really make there is for and if we're talking about, and, and this is where I think we always need to base it, like I always want to base what we're talking about in a fashion of multiple shots at an aggressive pace, okay? Because if we have a single shot that happens at those distances, like if we were to just punch the gun out and do a single shot, that is a completely different sight picture versus the gun is in attenuation during recoil, multiple shots at those distances, mm-hmm. okay? So five yards for an iron sights scenario, I want to see if, if the fiber in my front sight is, if I can see any amount of fiber in that notch, it's usually good enough to generate an A-zone hit if I'm honoring a, a proper aiming spot within the target. And a a USPSA target has, I think it's six by 11 or five Mm -hmm. by 11. Yep. Six inches wide. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I like to aim at the very top portion. So a head box size target. So basically a six by six target at the top portion of that A zone. Okay. And that is my default aiming spot on pretty much all the USPSA targets, unless there's visual barrier, hard cover, no shoot, or something covering that portion of the target. If that's covering that portion of the target, obviously I'm, I'm biasing my aiming spot a little bit higher. But for a lot of the stages that we shoot in USPSA, at least, it's very rare, actually, that we can't shoot at that part of the target. Because most of the partial stuff is in other places on the target. Mm-hmm. But if I honor waiting to shoot until my gun gets to that part of the target, then the gun is running, meaning shooting. If I see any amount of fiber in the notch, that's good enough. Meaning I'm, I'm getting like nine out of 10 A zone hits yeah. at an aggressive pace. And I should really say the appropriate aggressive pace. And for actually for a lot of people, anything within 10 yards, it's usually like max effort run that gun as hard as you can, and you're still going to generate decent A-zone hits if you start aiming at the proper spot on the target, right? <clears throat> so that's my five yards. Now, 15 yards, I want to be able to see any amount of light bar from a horizontal perspective, right? And, and what I've found is that the attenuation horizontally is, is going to swim less than the vertical attenuation dealing with the, mu- the muzzle flip of the gun, mm-hmm. right? So if I see any amount of horizontal light bar, that's usually good enough at 15 yards. Now at 25 yards, that's where we get into the trigger mechanic scenario, which is going to give me time to see even light and even height, meaning aligned sights, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Now, at all, each of those distances, I'm going to be able to see the corners of my front sight. Does that make sense? Yep. So I want to I always strive to see those front corners of the front sight 
not the serrations of the front side, not only the front side, you know, none of this like super separated front sight, rear sight type of sight picture. They're almost on the same plane, but I see, I want to see the front corners of the front sight. And, and to me, I'm front sight focused enough. And even with that level of, of sight focus, I can discern the perforations past 15, if that makes sense, mm. on the target. Mm. Right. And I think a lot of people don't realize that once they start picking aiming spots on the targets, their aiming tools are the perforations. Right. So they're, they're actually their eyes, their, their vision, their, what they're seeing in the sight picture for a lot of people, if like I'm using my hands across my chest here, the C zone diagonal perf line is the, is the most rudimentary aiming solution that we should be using as far as registering the gun on the target in the proper place. I also like to use that same terminology as I want to see those top corners of the A zone perforations to make sure that, Hey, am I registering the gun in that head headshot size portion of the A zone properly? Right. And uh, amazingly enough, if you shoot enough USPSA matches, even when the targets are pretty beat up and lots of shots on them, lots of tape, you can still see those corners, right? So I, I've, I'm intentionally picking aiming solutions or verification solutions on these targets that are going to be pretty consistent from one target to the next. Yeah. Yeah, I... I'm 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 tracking. I, I've got some thoughts, but let's let's. Uh, did you get all the way through? Yeah, you were talking about 25, and and where that's yeah, that's you know where for you the trigger mechanics become more um more of a factor. So uh, yeah, actually we have a question here from Malik on Facebook. Um, he's asking just I think it's just more for clarification to make sure he's understanding or following what you were explaining to be clear you stated to aim for or at the top portion of the center mass and uh, he puts in parentheses a zone top portion of a zone correct so the, like the yes. upper um, are you kind of more focused towards the upper third would you say yeah so like if, if, if my chest is if my chest is the a zone, right or i'm the target i'm aiming at this top portion of the target it's right? kind of I about should... the same portion of the target like if you were actually shooting idpa kind of about where that yeah. idpa circle would be right so so on that idpa circle in the same place is the top moon the top moon portion of that mm -hmm. down zero zone mm -hmm. right yeah so when i shoot at idpa targets that's what i'm striving to aim at and the reason why I like to aim at that upper, like instead of just doing center of mass, like our normal behavior in both recoil management mechanics, as well as trigger press mechanics, if we start to screw something up as far as the gun's still attenuating while we fire the next shot, it's usually going to be in the downstroke of the attenuation when that shot goes off. Or if we mash the trigger, the gun is going to go down the front sights are is going to go down comparative to the rear sight because we're putting downward pressure into the gun right. and our hit is going to be downward biased. So the, the further up I am biased on the A zone, my aiming spot is I have a little bit of insurance that if I do mash the trigger or the gun is attenuating down when the shot breaks 
and the hit's a little bit low, it's still in the A zone. Yeah. Whereas if I was aiming at the center of the A zone, I have a chance of, of getting a hit in the Charlie zone just below the A zone. Yeah. I, I would say that that's basically about my same approach and for a lot of the same reason that it's rare that I – I mean, I'm not saying it doesn't happen. It's just that it's less common that um, errant shots are high for me than they are low. You know, I mean, it's super rare for people not, not, you know, not considering anything left or right, but just when we're talking about like, we're talking about an A zone that's already biased in a vertical fashion. So which part of that's most forgiving for me as a shooter? Yeah. Like I'm, I'm probably kind of about, if you were to, if you were to section off the A zone into thirds about where that third, you know, about where that imaginary uh, section line, you know, a third and a third, that upper line where that would be, if you can imagine, and really what that would be is about a little less than four inches. It'd be somewhere between three and four inches of down from the top of the A zone, which mm-hmm. you know, the actual letter A in the A zone is maybe slightly below that. Um and I will say, I think there's times, and I think it maybe depends, and maybe it depends on how shot up a target is, but there's definitely been times where I, I noticed myself sort of like picking out, and, and I really like, my eyes I know are really drawn to the point of the A a lot of times, and I sometimes mm-hmm. will like find myself like really zeroing in on that. Other times, maybe that you know is all shot up, and I'm just kind of looking around that top upper third um, area of the target. Um, so that's kind of my, been my approach as well. And I think it works pretty well. Hey, dot gun on, uh, YouTube. Appreciate you joining us. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Um, so I was going to say my, my response, if you will, and then I'm going to ha- throw it back to you to have you talk a little bit about, um, the same sort of thing, like different aiming solutions f- at say five, 15 and 25 with a dot, but I'm going to throw at you kind of my couple, a couple of my thoughts with respect to iron sights in that context. Um, very much the same way at distance, you know, at 25 or beyond um, kind of more, more or less looking for that equal height, equal light. Um, I'll be honest. I'm not sure how much I really look for the top corners of the front sight, I, th- I think I'm probably processing that information. What I definitely know that I'm processing visual wise is, you know, how much light is on either side of the front sight. That for sure, and that's that's hard to miss. I think, and and to your point at, of shooting at intermediate distances, that that is very very critical. And that's frankly, I kind of touched on it earlier. One of the lessons that I learned from my experiment last fall in, in production division was like on tuxedo targets. That's where I was like, "Ooh, I really need to make sure I'm seeing, especially on those at those at like ten to fifteen yards, ate my lunch. If I was not, you know, seeing pretty equal light, um, you know, I could have a little bit of misalignment up and down at intermediate distance, but really needed to make sure I saw good measures of light on either side of the front sight." on those intermediate targets, especially when they were set up like a tux. So, um, but at, at 25 or so, um, 
I'm not sure, you know, exactly where my focus is, to be honest with you. And that's something I think I need, I, you know, as I, as I transition later this year to shooting more production division after I get through Care Optics Nationals, I, I think it's something I want to try to answer for myself a little bit more um, as far as exactly what features of the sites I'm using to uh, make that happen. I know that my eyes are really drawn to the, to the optic, to the fiber optic portion of the front sight. Um, like you, I run a fiber optic in the front. I think that it's pretty hard to beat for action shooting sports. And I think even in a lot of defensive context, I think a fiber optic front is pretty awesome as well. Um, but uh, I I wondered about how much was, you know, too much as far as the fiber optic. Um, I, I do think that I like a fairly small fiber optic. Um, I'm big enough that I can see it, but I don't want this huge, you know, bulb or anything out there. I, I definitely am, you know, with you on that, but I, I don't know that the brightness is, uh, a factor for me or not. And that's something I also want to experiment with a little bit more. Um, I did experiment a little bit, even at nationals, like on day two. Yeah. Day two, I was shooting AM schedule, if I recall correctly. And it was, you know, it was towards the end of the morning and the sun was like right here and it's be- beaming down on that fiber optic. Um, I, I, I remember I, you know, kind of colored in the fiber a little bit on the top just to kind of play around with that a little bit. And, uh, you know, I, I think it was okay. I'm just not sure if it, you know, was a huge uh, factor or not. So something I, I, I plan to experiment with a little bit more. Um, I think I tend to treat the 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 sights kind of like a, a red dot you know or an optic in that my I, I think of my rear sight the notch as sort of being like a window or an aperture that I'm just sort of looking through and then I'm you know which is not all that different from you know the 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 opening of my optic window and then I'm just trying to look for that fiber optic somewhere in there. And I think that's how I process most of my shots. Most of my shots with uh, irons is, hey, look through this window. And then when we see the dot in there, meaning my fi- fiber optic front sight, okay, send it. Bang, bang, you know. Um, I think that's how I'm processing it. I agree with you when you're talking about it sort of, it doesn't, you don't really perceive these different planes of front to rear sight so much. And that's definitely true when I'm shooting target focused. Because this is kind of blurry and this is kind of blurry and it's, it's, it's just all the same, really. So it's really just kind of blurry window thing. But again, that's not all that different from the window of an optic because this is all just kind of blurry visual noise as well. It's just a, that's just de- de- depicting where the limitations of my optic are. Well, that's, you know, kind of like what a rear sight is, is that this is where my focus is at is... I'm looking through this region and this is ultimately what matters the most. So, um, I just kind of look for, you know, that to be somewhere in there. And, uh, when I perceive it's in there, I send it now again, that's, that's true on those more intermediate shots at distance. I, I gotta let it settle a little bit more. Absolutely. And so one thing that I actually experimented with, and I hate to admit admit this, I, I probably, tested and used and thrown away more sites than I could have used to just buy another gun. But <laughs> when I was ex- exploring the, the whole uh, target focus solution, 
I actually had the best of luck when I was using fiber in the front and rear sight. Oh, interesting. Right? So, Ooh, so I, hate, I had I two fiber dots in the, in the back mm. and I had a fiber in the front, but what mm. I did is I actually made, so a normal size fiber in the front side is a 40 thousandths. Mm-hmm. I, I made some 20 thousandths in the back. Oh, interesting. So, 20 thousandths in the back and it really translated to just holes, 20 thousandths holes, mm. you know, in, in front of a 40 thousandths fiber. But that from a sight picture perspective and what you're observing, all three of those dots are about the same size. Mm. And I found that yeah. calling alignment with that three dot setup when the, all the dots were the same size became much easier when I had a target focus. So yeah. that, that might be something you want to experiment with. Yeah. No, that, so, I mean, I'm, I'm definitely open to experimenting more. Uh, no doubt about that. Uh, but having shot previously a lot of three dot style sight arrangements, granted, I maybe not was doing that so much with, uh, a target focus in mind, but I, I've, I, th- I thought I'd arrived at a place and I've definitely talked about this before where I'm, I, I'm not a huge fan of really anything in that rear sight that to me just ends up being more visual noise. Um, mm-hmm. And if it takes away any of the contrast, like for me, contrast is huge between front and rear. Uh, I noticed for me trying to run at, at speed, it's all about like, I'm trying to pick up where front sight is in relation to that notch. And, uh, if if that notch is just a nice crisp notch, then I'm just looking for something that's standing out from that front sight that says, "Yes, I'm here. Send me." You know, um, and when my perception, for, I, I think the last time I ran a three dot sight setup, and it's because I was testing these sites um, because the, the company had sent them to me. I think they were actually sites from. Uh, Oh, they're up in Laramie, Wyoming. Um, drawing a blank all of a sudden on the name, though. Is it Florida. True Glow? Hi-Viz. 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 Uh, yeah, yeah. Hi-Viz. They're made up there uh, just you know, north of us in Laramie, Wyoming. Uh, they sent me a set, and I was like, hey, yeah, I'll test them. You know, you, you asked me to do it, so I'll do it. And I ran those in a Dave Spaulding class, and I won't say I hated them. I mean, they're quality sites. There's no doubt about that. Uh, the sites are great sites. But I did not like having the the dots, you know, in the rear sight at all. Um, and so I I would end up, you know, I'd keep the front sight on those, no problem. They, you know, that was great. I thought the front sight was great, but I'd I'd I'd, I'd end up switching the rear to a just a, a plain, you know, black rear sight or whatever. I think is is what I would do. I never did end up changing uh, the sights on that gun. That's like around that same time I was already transitioning away from carrying and shooting glocks and so that was on my glock 17 and it it's still sitting in the safe with that same set of sights and i can run them fine it's just not my preference <laughs> you know it's not you know yeah so that's good um same type of question let's say a five yard target 10 or 15 yard target 25 yard target with an optic what do you need to see and what are you looking so, for yeah so uh, honestly you know the optic makes everything much easier from a perspective of where, where our focus is, right? So yeah. our focus should always be on the target. So really when I'm shooting a dot, I'm really looking for very precise places to focus on 
on the target, right? And that same aiming solution kind of is happening for uh, the further away the targets get, the more I want to see the perfs on the target, mm. if that makes sense. Yeah. Where on the closer targets, like an, a, a five-yard target, if if I were to not even turn on my dot and just use the hood of the site, I could generate a zone hits over and over and over and over and over and over and over, which tells me how much of a red dot do I really need to see at that distance? Not a lot. If my focus is on the proper place on the target, my biomechanics is going to get the gun to where I need it to be. And I can use the rough, you know, silhouette of the, the hood of the gun to get my, get me shooting sooner. Right. So for really close targets, shooting a dot, that's what I'm really looking for. I'm, I'm actually using the hood as a notch, if that makes sense. And yeah. it, it's, it's like an iron circle, right. Or square. And, and that's, you know, if it's, aligned enough on the registration of the target, then it's good. Right. So at those different distances, really what it's the, what I see in the red dot is the pace of shooting is going to be different at all those distances. Right. Meaning the closer the target, the more aggressive the pace is, the further the target, the, the more reserved the pace is, which translates to attenuation noise of the dot within the glass. Right. So I'm going to allow pretty noisy dot in the glass, meaning streak up and down and all over the place. If it's anywhere in the A zone streaking around and going crazy, it's good enough. Let's get it going. Yep. Right. At 15, that streak needs to be a little bit more reined in. You can still get away with a pretty decent amount of streak. If that streak is still in the A zone, the chances of you getting the A zone hit is pretty high. Does it make sense? Yep. Now, when we get out at 25 yards or beyond, that's almost almost at the distance where, at least for me, I'm not shooting much of a streak at that distance. It's usually, once again, we're back into the, the, the time of the trigger, trigger mechanic. I have to do a trigger mechanic that you know eliminates as much trigger mash as possible, which allows the dot to basically become a dot again. Yep. So it's a stationary dot on a piece of the target, hopefully on my aiming spot, and I'm working on the trigger mechanic to make that a clean shot break. So it's basically for me, 25 yards, solid dot, right? 15 yards is a minimal streak and five yards is hood or any amount of streak. Yeah. I think that we're very similarly aligned, um, with, uh, that approach. Absolutely. Um, yeah, like, like you said, and this is the way I try to explain it to folks. When I'm shooting up close targets, five, seven, sometimes even approaching 10 yards, maybe not quite 10, but definitely like definitely five and seven a lot of times too. Um, you know, people know that I, in the past, have generally done, a, I, I kind of had a thing at one time for shooting a lot of build drills, uh, pretty proficient with shooting a build drill. I could shoot a whole build drill just looking through the optic window and get, you know, six out of six hits probably 90% of the time. Maybe. Yeah, maybe 80, 85%, but somewhere in that ballpark, like a high probability of getting all them all in the A zone, just, just looking through the optic window because it's seven yards and there's not a whole lot I have to see. Um, and so, yeah, but, but here, here's, the, here's the thing. So when I'm shooting up close targets with a dot, I am not waiting to see my dot coincidentally a lot of times the dot happens to be there 
anyway. And it's just like an extra mm-hmm. layer of uh, confirmation of just, I see, you know, a bunch of red somewhere in there and it's like, send it, send it, send it, you know, but I'm not necessarily waiting for it. Um, once the gun is aligned on target, which is, I can basically figure out just by optic window, the gun superimposed on, you know, the center of the target, whatever, I'm ready to go. And this happens to be there most of the time, but not waiting for it. And then as we start pushing a little bit more back, like once I start approaching about 10 yards, I'm definitely like, I'm going to exercise a little more care and need to see this, but it can be very erratic. And then like you at at about kind of that intermediate 15, 18 yard distance, somewhere in there. And the terminology I heard uh, Max Michelle use in a, I just saw it in a video that he posted, you know, on YouTube years ago. And I, I like the term and he described, he, you know, and he's kind of describing something similar and he referred to it as sort of like a floating sight picture. And so the way I translate that in, in my own mind is like, I can accept a lot of dot movement at 15, 20, you know, even 20 yards. Um, but it's more of a float. So it's, it's, it might be a little bit of a streak, but maybe, but it's definitely not like the streak I'm seeing. It's, you know, seven yards. It's like wandering around. There's going to be always like, yeah, there's no time to wait for it to be a stationary thing within the glass. Right. right? If you're waiting for it to be stationary centered in the glass before you send a shot, you're, you're just donating behind the, behind the, the, the curve. Yep. Yeah, donating time, like like you like to say, which is which is so true. So that that yeah, that's my approach. And then um, I didn't touch on this with irons, and so I'm going to come back to that uh, just real quick because my approach with irons at close distances is is also kind of a similar approach. That for like a five year target, um, I'm not really even looking for much here. It's more of just gun is superimposed over the center of the A zone. I mean, if you honestly take a five yard A zone and punch your gun out and just center it over that, you'll see that you, the width of your slide is probably just a hair wider than the A zone at five yards. So if you center that on there, though, there's a high probability you're hitting that A zone. Um, even with, you know, just kind of a, your sights might not be all that perfectly aligned at all, but you're just seeing, hey, gun is centered on there, send it. I mean, coincidentally, a lot of times this guy, the front sight meaning, um, happens to be kind of in there, but I'm not necessarily mm-hmm. waiting on it. So that's, yeah, so for that's my approach. The funny, like one of the things that I do in my class is I have like a site deviation drill for iron sights where mm-hmm. I have people purposely deviate the sights left and right and up and down to certain quantities or magnitudes and then shoot like a single precision shot with it deviated in those different angles and then just go look at the targets at those different distances and see like, where did the hit end up? Right. It, at what point, you know, like if you take just super easy context, if you were to take the front sight and then deviate it left or right and cut the front fiber in half by the edge of the notch and you, you center the rear notch on the center of the A zone, there's going to be a high chance that there's still still generating a zone hits yep and for most competition size notches and front sights and that kind of stuff i've actually found that at five yards you can see no sight and still hit the a zone at five yards yep. right so yeah, i'm not saying that in a manner that like hey we don't i don't have to align my sights like <laughs> we also right. want to like i think you you described it very well like you're not waiting for a dot to show up in the glass 
like I'm not waiting for a front sight to show up in the notch, but it just happens to be there. Yeah. Right. Because my mechanics are proper enough that every time the gun's between my face and a target, the sights are pretty much aligned, right? Yeah. Whether that's a dot in the glass or iron sights in a notch, you know, that kind of situation. Yeah. 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 I mean, I'm all about shot accountability, uh, both in the competition context and especially in the defensive context. And so, I mean, really what we're talking about here today is like, what, what do I need to see for a given target at a given distance? Um, realizing that a lot of targets are going to be at varying distances. What do I need to see to have good hits, to have shot accountability for, for these targets? Um, and, well, that, you know. that's the thing is I, I think that there's not, there's not many people that go and test deviation. Yeah. Right. At distance. Right. So set up targets from five, all the way out to 25 and five yard increments, five, 10, 15, 20, 25, and deviate your sights on purpose, fire precision shot with that deviated sight and go look, where would the, where did the hit go? Yeah. Right. Yep. Cause if you don't do that, you're never going to open up your subconscious to be okay with a deviated alignment sight picture. Yep. Right. There's a lot of people that like, they're like, no, I can't shoot right now because it's not even height or even light or the dots not centered in the glass where I see a solid dot in the middle of the glass. Like we should be testing and proving to ourselves what's good enough. How aligned do these iron sights have to be? How steady does the dot have to be within the glass to generate solid good hits? That's the type of practice people should be doing. Absolutely. It's it's a wonderful thing to do in practice from an experimental, like this is an example of experimentation in practice so that you can start to sort of build this uh, database within your brain of this is what I can get away with and this is what's required because th- this is all a game of doing just enough, not, not, not too little and not too much of a certain thing. And that that's referencing of, you know, your, your aiming solution, your sight picture, because too much, if you're seeing too much, then you're just giving up time. And if you're seeing too little, then you're probably missing shots. Right. And so you're trying to find that. And that's, that's why, I mean, it's not easy. Like we all know that uh, it's, it's, uh, it, and it's going to be a little bit different for every person. And some of the things we've talked about so far, um, like you and you and I, I mean, I think we have pretty good, pretty consistent uh, biomechanics and indexes with our guns that most of the time we present to a target and stuff is just there. But if you're a, de- a developing shooter, that may not be the case yet. And, but hopefully listening to this, you can kind of go, well, that's what I should be like. That's what I want to be, you know, striving towards. Um, and if you're not like, Hey, guess what? More dry fire practice for you because you want to get to where you grab the gun, you grip it consistently, like right from the get go, right from the very first touch of the gun, that that all the way to here, meaning full presentation is the same and is consistent every time. Cause that's where that, that's where that begins is right from the first touch of the gun's got to be consistent or something's not going to be quite right. Something, you know, the, the muzzle's going to end up slightly left, slightly right, slightly up, slightly down. And so we want to eliminate those, uh, those variables and, and have it be consistent each time. Yeah. Let me uh, take I a see. quick, oh, go for yeah. it. Yeah. There's, there's a question you see it, huh? Yeah. Uh, 
I, I'm going to take a quick moment here because I'm a little behind on schedule doing this, but we have our second episode sponsor spot here. I got to, I got to get out, which is, uh, shoot, I forgot already. <laughs> Range tech shot timers. There we go. Range tech shot timers. Um, we've been, you know, making these in house here in Colorado since early 2018. That's been five years now. Wow. Uh, we, really revolutionized the shot timer market. I don't know how many people realize this by releasing the first Bluetooth uh, shot timer to the market. Uh, they didn't really exist before range tech version one came out in like April, 2018. Uh, so first Bluetooth shot timer, first shot timer that had an indicator light on it. Uh, now you see in some of these that are, you know, some of these competing products that are incorporating some of those features. Actually, they're almost all going to Bluetooth now and uh, kind of proud of the fact that we've, we were one of the first in doing that. And also with one of the most aggressively value priced products as well for shot timers. That's still something that we're striving for today with range tech shot timers. We want to get shot timers in the hands of more shooters because it's a valuable training tool Charlie understands the importance of putting together and, you know, and gathering data from your shooting performance, from your practice sessions, from your training, all of that, because that, I mean, some of what we're talking about here today, like figuring out what you can get away with and how much you need to see. I mean, a lot of that's a visual process, but also combining it with, well, hey, at 15 yards or at 25 yards or whatever distance, like this is what I'm seeing in terms of splits or transitions or whatever, and combining that with what you're also seeing. That's all part of assembling that picture of knowing who you are as a shooter and what you can do. Understanding your limits as a shooter is super important so you can operate within and stay within those limits, whether you're a competitive shooter or defensive-oriented one. And also knowing what you can do, knowing what your potential is, all that's super important. And having a shot timer is an important piece of that, an important tool. And uh, we haven't talked about it a whole ton, but it's been out there. It's been, you know, there's a video from Shot Show, but, you know, we got Range Tech version two coming at some point down the road. Not going to talk about it too much just yet, but that's a prototype I just held up there in the screen and it works pretty good. Still got some things to iron out, and it's going to be a little ways out before we get those out to the market. But still, today, Range Tech version 1 uh, is about the cheapest shot timer you can find on the market that actually does the job. So check it out today. Go to rangetechtimer.com. Appreciate you guys' support of our podcast sponsors so we can continue to bring quality content to you. Now, Charlie, back to uh, this question. We got a question from Malik. Again, good question. I I love it, Malik. Uh, And Malik, by the way, uh, took a intro to competitive shooting class for me last fall, Charlie, at our uh, Guardian Conference. Cool. Yeah, and he's been shooting a lot more matches, uh, especially this year. Uh, he shot like four or so matches, I think, this year already, which is really cool to see. And he says he's having some a, a problem with not respecting no-shoot targets. He says he's grouping quarter-inch groups right on the no-threat. How do I respectfully engage that without slowing down? Mm, good question. What do you think, Charlie? So usually for people that are uh, having challenges with uh, no shoot or non-threat targets, partial targets in pretty much any manner, is they, they are transitioning their aiming solution 
from I'm blasting it brown, kind of like center mass blasting, and then they transition onto a partial target some manner. And they're like, wait a minute, now I have to make a decision on where do I aim and at what pace do I need to shoot at, right? So uh, this is where uh, for all my students, I tell them this solution becomes very easy when you have a consistent aiming solution for all the targets. Like I was mentioning earlier, for me, I predominantly shoot USPSA that has that square A zone in the body, right? That long, tall uh, A zone. So I always, my default aiming spot on those targets is that upper portion of the body A zone. And the purpose of that is that at least in USPSA matches, that part of the target is available to shoot at the vast majority of time, right? It also promotes the factor of if I'm shooting at a head size target all the time, then when I'm forced to shoot a head size target, it's no big deal because I've been doing that on every single target, right? So that's where if you hone your skills to shoot at a head size target within the body, then all of these partial targets, really, they melt away, right? And if you can aggressively shoot at a head size target in a full open target, unpartialed up target, you're going to have that same confidence of being able to shoot at that same pace when the target is partialed. I love that answer. That's, that's, you ended up kind of going back and recovering something you already touched on, but with the emphasis on, on, uh, in a big way of why that's so beneficial, especially in the sport that uh, Malik is just getting into uh, along with us. Um, I'm, I'm going to answer a little bit, Malik, for you. I'm going to come at this from a little bit of the, uh, you know, kind of more the mental side a little bit in that one thing that I've seen, and I've seen it with myself. Um, I'm, in fact, I, spe- I remember a match. I think it was your match, Charlie, um, the uh, Mile High Showdown a couple years ago. And there was uh, one stage, it was like stage two or stage three, I remember. And right off the bat, you know, the, in effect, it was a stage where like kind of almost every alternating target was uh, some kind of partial, I think a no shoot. And um, the, one of the very first targets I, I engaged, I remember, was a partial no shoot target. And for whatever reason, I was in my mind, I was thinking, oh no, like, like, don't shoot the no shoot, don't shoot the no shoot, don't shoot the no shoot. And what did I and do? What did like, you do? I shot the no shoot, right? <laughs> because, like, yeah. our, our brains, um, you know, if we draw attention to something, um, even if it's in trying to say, don't do the thing, our brain is still thinking about the thing. And so, and yeah. what I have found is, like, as I paid closer and closer attention to what I was actually looking at in scenarios like that, where I was like focused on trying to avoid this thing I was afraid of subconsciously, that my eyes were actually going to that thing. And so Malik, mm-hmm. it's entirely possible that you're experiencing something as similar as well, where you're like, oh no, no shoot, like don't hit it. And then like your eyes are still just drawn over to it and your gun will go to where your eyes are looking. That's yeah. kind of remarkable how that works. Yeah. The, the bullets usually get sucked into where we're looking. Right. (laughs) So like that's, that's a really interesting scenario. Like you've probably shot enough matches Riley, where let's say that you're engaging a partial target and you transition off of it and you catch out of the corner of your eye. Oh, I have one of my hits was in the partial, like the hardcover portion of the target. Yeah. Then you 
transition back to it and your eyes are looking at that hole in the black mm. and your makeup shot goes right next to that same hole in the black mm. right so <laughs> yes. it's, it's that same situation like the bullets are going to go where our eyes are drawn to right so yep. like i'm super judicious on where what i need to focus on and i'm never going to be focusing on partial like hardcover or no shoot portions of the target i'm always going to be looking at definitive things within the brown shoot portion of the targets. Yep. Usually that's going to be perforations, right? That are defining the scoring zones. Yep. If the targets are too shot out, I'll pick specific pieces of tape or clumps of tape to be my focal point. Mm, yeah. Yeah. So I have had significant better, sig- significantly better success with partials, especially in the case of no shoots, uh, because the risk on those is higher, right? Um, you know, because there's very little, like the only risk with hardcover no shoot or hardcover partials is that I may end up with a mic, you know, if I don't notice that I don't have the required two hits or whatever. But on no shoot, for every round that hits the no shoot, that's more penalties. So um, I've had significantly better success as I have mentally gotten to a place where I don't, it's not a, oh, this is a no shoot t- target, you know, arrangement. This is a, no, it's just, what can I shoot? Like, what is my available target surface? I'm aware of that no shoot that's on there as well. But you just from like a risk perspective, just from a, like, I'm, I know that I can't go there. Like I, and I already know that subconsciously that like, got it. Um, but all of my mental energy and focus and, and including that visually is on what can I shoot and where's, you know, so where does my, where does my eye need to be? And uh, as I've reinforced that practice, um, I, I really don't have a lot of anxiety at all with a no-shoot partial. Um, to me, it's just a, yeah, well, this is now my target's this instead of, you know, this. Like, whatever. So I'm going to aim here. Um, if, it's a, if it's kind of a tight, you know, like uh, maybe I have the upper three inches or something of A zone, um, I find myself kind of, you know, aiming right at the perf, the perf line. Um, and what that translates to is probably 75% of the time I have two alpha and in, and the rest of the time it's alpha, you know, an alpha and a Charlie and every once in a while it's two Charlie. And I'm like, yeah, okay. But at least I didn't hit the no shoot. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of my approach. Um, just following up on Malik's, he's commenting back or question asking, uh, he says, couldn't agree more. Can, please. Can you define Steve Anderson center of the dot call my shot? I don't know if you're familiar with that, um, Charlie. Um, I'm not. But uh, I know that that's like Steve Anderson's uh, mantra is, you know, center the dot, call the shot. And by center the dot, he's referring to, I think, the the center of uh, whatever available target area uh, that there is. And so just center it up and then call your shot, which, you know, that's that's a good skill. That's That should definitely be um, reinforced. And I do hope to see you, Malik, at a uh, in pistol intelligence class um, this year. Absolutely, brother. Anytime, anywhere. If you can make it, love to see you. Okay, so Charlie, we've been going at this an hour and fifteen minutes, bud. Um, and and I don't know how how much you're good for, but uh, um, you know, I've I've really enjoyed a lot of the stuff that we've covered thus far. What else yeah. is there that you want to you know discuss with respect to aiming solutions? So. I- I, if, if I think there, if there's a parting thing that I want to you know, enforce in people's minds is to, to always try to live 
in a, a sight picture or sight movie, like you like to say, because that's really more the reality of it, that is always in motion. Yeah. Right. So one of my goals every time I'm, you know, shooting a stage is that if my sights or dot is steady on any given target, I'm probably aiming too hard. If that makes sense. Yeah. I'm donating time. I'm over aiming. Um, so I'm always striving. I'm only like shooting my dot these days. I'm only allowing myself to see a steady dot in the glass on very difficult distance targets or for the vast majority of the time, the first target I transition to in an array. After that, it should always be dot in motion. And I got to be okay with that. And I got to be okay with embracing the streak, right? So <clears throat> yeah, keep, ride, ride keep the, the gun streak. moving. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's good advice. Uh, spot on. Um, you know, actually I had, so I had a question for you that I meant to get out a little bit earlier. Um, and then I kind of spaced it. In fact, I had this in mind since before we started recording this episode. Uh, so I'm going to throw this at you, you know, as we kind of also start winding things down here, but since you spent so much time on irons for a good chunk of your shooting career, and, and now you're really focusing more on the, on the optic, um, you know, one thing that seems to come up as a topic of discussion with respect to uh, pistol mounted optics is people will talk about where they are, uh, they tend to be maybe too focused on the dot itself as opposed to mm -hmm. the target. So I was just curious with your own transition, if that was, if that's something that you um, ever struggled with or something that you were like, oh, hey, I got to be careful with this. Um, but with you coming so much from iron sided shooting, did you, have you ever had any challenges with respect to getting dot focused? Absolutely. I mean, I think that all iron sight shooters kind of start shooting a dot as if it's a front sight, mm -hmm. right? They have, and to make it even harder, you have this omnipresent glowing dot in a glass telling you the whole story the whole time. Right. Yeah. And so for me, if I'm, if I have a red dot at the proper brightness, I should almost be able to see through the, the dot itself. Right. So that is abnormal compared to most other people. They usually crank the dot up to max brightness. It's super flared out and it's this glowing sun in the middle of the glass. It's very, very difficult to have a maintain a hard target focus when there's such an omnipresent dot, if that makes sense. Like I've had the best of luck calling my shots and shooting aggressively, tracking the dot when it's at a dimness level that I can almost see through it. So I'm almost, uh, I like to use the dot as a peripheral aiming device and peripheral is probably the wrong word, but it's not a primary aiming device, right? I, I would almost consider the hood of the glass or the structure around the glass is the most rudimentary aiming device when you're shooting any kind of red dot setup, right? Because ultimately you know, we need some kind of aiming solution if that dot fails. And, and knowing what is this centering of the the hood on the dot at, uh, on the sorry on the target at any given distance, what's good enough? So we we need to test that just like we test you know variations of deviated iron sights, right? But for me, I, I've 
I've had better luck with bigger size dots that are at a dimmer brightness level. And the way that I like to see it is if I can see a very crisp, sh sharp circle of a dot, I can call my shots when that dot is streaking in the glass way easier than a super bright flared out dot. Mm. Okay. And, and what it, what I've found, and once again, I, I hate to even say how much I've spent in different dots and <laughs> buying different, you know, different size glasses, different dot sizes, different colors of dots, you know, all that kind of craziness. But I've found that over the, t over time, I'm veering away from the smaller MOA dots going to bigger MOA dots and also going to brands that have dot brightness levels that are graduated for the lighting conditions I'm mostly going to be shooting in. Right. So for me, a USPSA shooter, the vast majority of matches are outdoors. So I need a daylight brighting brightness level setting type of dot. Like there's a lot of dots on the market that are trying to be the Swiss army knife work, work with, um, night sights, you know, you know, that kind night, of stuff, night vision, night vision, night vision yep. you know, and what you're really doing is you're giving away brightness graduation for these super dim settings. You're never going to use. Right. So and the way I look at it is if, if I'm going to get a night vision set up, I'm going to get a night vision dot. Right. <laughs> I, I'm not going to try to make this Swiss army dot that has giving away brightness levels at these super low levels that I'm never going to use in a competition scenario. I'm going to use a different brand that has added. They only have daylight brightness levels so I can get that perfect brightness, or I should really say the perfect dimness mm. for the given lighting conditions where it is a very crisp circular dot and it's not flared out and I can almost see through it. If I get that level of brightness, it's game on. Like I have a very easy time calling my shots and running the gun at pace when the dot is streaking around the glass. Yeah. I, I'm with you on this, uh, wholeheartedly. You know, I was already on the uh, big dot train, um, before I really knew you, uh, super well. Uh, as far as I, I'd kind of recognized that, Hey, with a bigger dot, I didn't have to run it as bright and could still pick it up and see it as I needed to. And it was a lot more crisp. And it's like, oh, this is so much nicer than this like bloomed out or starbursty, you know, thing. And so uh, I, I've been loving big dots uh, since the first one I tried. And I, you know, I ran like a 2.5 or 3 MOA dot for a good while. And then I remember getting my first 6 MOA dot and thinking, oh man, like you know, it, it changed actually quite a bit for me in my perception of the use of a red dot. Um, I've got a, I've got one dot. It's actually a hollow sun. I don't even think they make it anymore, but apparently they've brought part of this reticle back with their new competition red dots. Um, where I've got one that's an eight MOA circle. It's an actual circle instead of a you know a, a whole eight MOA dot, and that one is freaking awesome. Um, it's big; I can see it, but I can also see literally right through the middle of it, uh, mm -hmm. it which is which is kind of a cool approach. Um, but I do have to give credit to you because you did change a little bit, not like in a huge you know night and day type way but like you have you you influenced me for the better uh with uh kind of the nuance of 
dialing in where I needed the dot brightness to be at. And I was definitely biasing my dot brightness a little bit brighter than I, than I, than I know where you do. And that's been a good influence on me because I remember you talking about this in one of the classes that I took from you. And I was like, oh, I should experiment more with this and seeing what I can get away with dimness wise. Uh, how how bright do, really, do I really need it to be to still pick it up and track it and see it and call shots and all of that the way I want to or the way I need to, and that's been a good uh, that's been a good move for me. Um, I, uh, I I never run a dot now where it gets anywhere close to a starburst. I will say that the one thing that I do it's a strategy decision with kind of like you know the type of stage that I'm about to shoot so. Uh, on a stage that's pretty technical or maybe has, um, you know, a good mix of difficulty of shots or it's a stage that has a lot of hard shots either way. You know, if, it, if it's technical at all, then I'm running that dot more biased towards a, a dim setting. Mm-hmm. Um, and it keeps me a lot more disciplined in terms of, you know, how I'm running the gun and, and seeing the dot. The but if it's a if it's a hoser stage where everything's kind of close and just wide open targets and it's like go go to town and blast away, then I, I will usually click it up a you know a, a click or two just depending on how bright it actually is outside, and I'll, I'll run it a little bit brighter on a hoser type stage uh, because you know there's not a lot of hard aiming required and I'm I'm looking mm-hmm. to get like super fast super obvious you know uh, dot feedback on these you know up close uh, fast targets and so that's kind of my strategy uh, with respect to I'll, I, I that's that's part of my make ready routine is I already know ahead of time I'm like okay this is a technical stage like I'm going to do my practice draw I'm going to check the dot okay let's click that down a little bit you know and then other stages a hoser stage I'm like well, let's, let's, let's bump that up. You know, we, we can, I won't run it, you know, to where it's starbursting, but maybe, maybe a slight bloom or something, just a slight, you know, amount, but uh, you've been a good influence on me on me in that. One thing I've noticed in my instruction is that uh, with respect to users of pistol mounted optics, most shooters I come across in my classes are running their dots way too bright. Mm-hmm. Um, this is very evidently known and I, I pick up on it really quick on like day one of my class and kind of in the beginning of class, uh, we'll do kind of, you know, more, more of a slow fire kind of site confirmation type shooting stuff. Um, number one, I do that to start slow and warm up and I'm also reading my students and like making sure I kind of have a sense of where they are skill wise. And if there's any, you know, anybody I got to watch, uh, kind of closely because of, you know, unfamiliarity with the gun or safety issues, that kind of thing. The other purpose is to give the student the opportunity, like, Hey, let's make sure that our guns are actually somewhat sighted in. Uh, cause if they're not <laughs> then the rest of the class almost doesn't matter. Uh, yeah. so, <laughs> so, um, and then very quickly, those that are running dots, it, you know, when we're kind of like confirming our site and it's like, you know, some things start to pop up and, and comments are made. And I'm like, how bright you run that dot? And they're like, well, it's kind of bright. And I'm like, let me take a look. And then I look in there and it's like, ah, I've just looked into the sun, you know, <laughs> just mm-hmm. like this laser beam, just, just trying to blind my retina. And I'm like, you know what? You'd probably do a little bit better, especially with a site in, if we toned that down just a little bit. And I actually recommend to my students, um, if you're, especially if you're doing like true slow fire with a dot and, and anytime I'm, I'm sighting in a, a dot with a pistol or changing my, my, my pistol load or whatever, um, 
I, I tune my or turn my dot brightness down to where like literally I can barely see it. Because mm-hmm. at that point, I'm not that concerned about, I'm not shooting fast. I'm not trying to, you know, track it or keep, you know, keep my eye on it. It's like, no, I just want to barely see that thing and pow. Okay. All right. Pow. You know, I'm doing a sight in. Um, and that, that helps, at least helps me when I'm doing more slow fire oriented activities with a dot. Um, that, you know, it's definitely dimmer than how I would shoot it on, you know, like a, a course of fire, but, uh, and, and. I, I explain that to students and they're like, Oh man, I'm running this and it looks like a star and you know, like, like the star of Bethlehem or something. It's like, no, hold on, hold on. We don't want that. Uh, so yeah, that, I, that's, that's a good thing to, to figure out. Um, and those that are running auto brightness setting type dots, um, which there are a number of those, I rarely find those to be successful. Uh, mm-hmm. they're either too bright or too dim. Uh, for based on the lighting conditions and uh so yeah it ho- thankfully i think most of the dots that have auto brightness settings most of them not all uh are you can turn it off yeah allow you to turn that feature off and then you take full control <laughs> over that thing which is what you should do yeah. so there yeah. you go that's kind of my my final wrap well, that, if I you mean, will yeah i mean from an moa size like this can be <laughs> talk too dead to the nth degree but like right now I'm running a 10 MOA dot and I, I still think that that is a little too small. <laughs> right. And, yeah. and people are like, Oh, the 10 MOA, that's going to be humongous. But if we put it in perspective, 10 MOA is just over two inches at 25 yards. Yep. That's still pretty tiny. Right. That's, that's still within a headshot at 50 yards. Yep. Right. So, and the thing that I don't think a lot of people get is that when they have their two or three MOA dot cranked to the moon, as bright as the sun, that thing is bloomed out to be at least a 10, if not a 12 MOA blob in your, in your glass blob. Right? Exactly. Right. So yep. I, I would much rather have that same 10, 10, 12 MOA thing to use but it to be a non-flared out, very crisp circle. Well-defined. Right? Yes. Yeah. That tells you a lot more about like, uh, you, you get a lot better aiming solution type information when you can actually see what the physical limitations of your dot are relative to target, as opposed to this blob or flare or whatever. So yeah, yeah, couldn't agree more. I'm pretty happy with the six MOA. I again, I like that eight, eight MOA uh, uh, ring thing that I that I have in my one hall sun. Um, I haven't had the opportunity to pick up a dot that actually had anything bigger than that. I'm sure I'd like it just fine as well. Um, and at the same time, I know some high skill shooters that also really like 2.5 to 3 MOA dots. And that's, you know, hey, it's great. Mm -hmm. We live in a time and a day and an age uh, where we have all these options. And if, if that's what you decide you like, 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 okay, cool. Like, great. You know, that's, that's your right. Um, I do tend to kind of get on a bit of a soapbox to talk about how I think big dots have some advantages, mostly because there's just not a lot of people that like, 
it seems to be the prevailing viewpoint that no, I need a small MOA dot for precision's sake. And <laughs> to your point, I've, I've used the same logic. I'm like, well, my six MOA is a 1.5 inch equivalent size at 25 yards. It's three inches at 50. I can't, well, it's tiny. I can <laughs> barely, my best group ever at 50 yards was like 2.5 inches. So I can barely shoot within the, <laughs> that, mm-hmm. that, that surface area that that dot covers at 25 or 50 yards. Most people cannot. Most people cannot. Yeah. I, I can't shoot <laughs> three MOA with a pistol. I'm just not at that level. And if you are, well, wow, good for you. But yeah. <laughs> that's the other thing to keep in mind is like, well, you can't even keep all your shots in that in that three MOA dot anyway. So I don't understand the the precision argument with that. But that's just me. Yeah. It's, it's always the gun. It's always the gun that did it, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, cool, man. This has been a this has been a great time with you this evening. Uh, I think we've covered a lot of good stuff with respect to site pictures and aiming solutions and seeing what you need to see. I hope listeners and viewers have found some value in the topics we've discussed this evening on this special rare late night concealed carry podcast. Uh, appreciate you making your time available to us, Charlie, to, to get together and do this. And of course we'll have to, and I'm sure we will do it again at some point down the road. Um, what do you want to say uh, to, you know, as, as parting words and as a, as a final wrap up here? Yeah, I want to say thank you very much for having me on again. I really appreciate you taking the time to us having a, a fun discussion around shooting. Hopefully it's of value to your listeners. Hopefully it gets them a little bit out of their comfort zone to maybe expand their skill set and learn some new stuff. Um, if you want to get a hold of me to do some training stuff, you can always go to my website, bigpandaperformance.com. Um, go there, have fun, be safe out there. Yeah. Yeah, good plug, man. BigPandaPerformance.com, one more time. And buy Charlie's book if you don't already have it and read it because he talks about a lot of the stuff that we've just talked about this evening in great detail as well as a bunch of whole uh, or a whole bunch of other wonderful uh, topics as well in his fabulous book. Uh, you'll see it there on his website. Uh, again, today's episode sponsors were KSG Armory. You can find that at ksgarmory.com as well as Range Tech Shot Timers, which you can find at rangetechtimer.com. And a thank you to title sponsor, Mountain Man Medical, which you can find at mountainmanmedical.com. And guys, thank you again for your support of this podcast, for your support of our sponsors. Without that support, we would not still be doing this seven years plus uh, into this, uh, what started as an experiment with the Concealed Carry Podcast. Uh, And so we appreciate your support. Appreciate you being here and listening and watching. And if you have any questions or suggestions or topic ideas or anything at all, reach out to us. The the podcast hotline email is podcast at concealedcarry.com. That comes to me, Jacob, and Matthew, our three main hosts, uh, simultaneously. We, We monitor that and we try to make sure we respond to everything that comes into the into the podcast email. So until next time, everybody. Goodbye, Charlie. Thank you so much. And best of luck to you. I know you're shooting Rocky Mountain 300 this weekend, so hope that goes well for you. Yeah. Yeah. It'll be fun. And I've got uh, uh, Carry Optics Nationals coming up in like three weeks. And actually next week, 
holy smokes, I'll be in Texas to teach a class. And because it coincidentally landed on the same week as Area 4, I'm going to shoot Area 4 on staff day. Uh, so it'll be fun as well. Sweet. <laughs> so until next time, best of luck to you. Best of luck to all of you. And until we meet again, a reminder to train right, train often, and train safe so you can fight hard, fight fast, and fight true. Take care. Take care.